questions. Uh, if any of you know me at all relatively well, you know that I love to ask questions. Uh, sometimes I annoy people with how many questions I actually ask, um, especially when I meet someone for the very first time, whether I go out and grab a coffee with them or actually I don't drink coffee, grab a Diet Pepsi with them. Um, they always kind of end the conversation as, wow, you ask a lot of questions. I've never had someone interrogate me, I mean, ask me questions uh, as much as you do. And uh, part of why I love asking people questions is because it's a great way to get to know people. And uh, tonight, specifically, we're looking at questions that people were coming to Jesus with. And before we get to the text, I wanted to put something uh, in your heart and mind of what questions right now, as you're here tonight, what questions are you asking as it relates to God? What kind of questions do you have uh, that you are struggling with, that you're wrestling with? Uh, what questions are you actually asking of God? Because the questions that we are actually asking of God are very revealing of our hearts, our lives. Our questions could reveal maybe frustrations we have with God. Our questions could reveal Maybe disappointments that we have with God. Maybe it hurts or we feel let down or we feel that God is just distant. So what kind of questions are you asking? Maybe your questions are like, God, where are you? Or how much longer am I going to have to endure this situation, maybe this circumstance? Uh, God, when will you show up? When will you provide? What kind of questions are you asking? So questions reveal certainly our heart, our view, our attitudes towards God. And then secondly, and maybe even more so, um, the questions you guys are actually asking, do you actually want the answer? I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes there are people who just like to ask questions just to make their opinion known. They don't actually really care what the answer is. They're more concerned about getting their question out there. And so sometimes we ask questions of God, and we don't actually even stick around long enough to get a response or to get an answer because ultimately... That's not what we're there for. We use our questions maybe to vent. We want to make our opinions known, and we do that through our questions. So not only what questions are you asking, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I actually even want to know what the answer is? Now, I've been told since I was a little kid, um, and I'm sure you have as well, that there are no bad questions, right? The only bad question is the question that goes, what is it, un, unasked? Uh, thank you. That's just not true. Basically, teachers tell kids that so they don't end up in counseling for years and years after like elementary school. Let me tell you, there are some really bad questions. Tonight, we're looking at two specific questions that are just really bad questions. And as I was thinking about bad questions, I've asked a lot. I don't know if you've asked a bad question in your life, but I certainly have. And I was trying to think, what is just, what is a really dumb question that I've, that I've asked? And I remember the first thing that came to mind, this happened a few years ago. Um, I was having dinner with uh, a gentleman who uh, is deaf. Um, and so he was an incredible lip reader. So you could carry on a conversation with him, and he would read your lips and give you responses. And, you know, I don't know uh, sign language or anything like that. And so about maybe five, ten minutes into the conversation, I looked at him. And in all seriousness, I just, I looked straight at him. I was like, so tell me, was it really difficult to learn Braille? <laughs> and he gave me this look like, are you serious? 
And uh, I was like, and he didn't give me a response. And I was like, I just imagine that's just a really tough thing to learn and to pick up. And he just looked at me, and he was very nice because he knew I was an idiot. And um, he just said, you know, I'm, I'm actually deaf. I'm not blind. And I was like, oh, that's right. Braille is for people who are blind, not so much deaf. Now, I could give you a long list of dumb, bad, idiotic questions that I've asked throughout the years, but uh, that's definitely at the top of my list. So there are certainly bad questions that people ask, and uh, very specifically tonight, we're looking at uh, a few. We'll start with these. Taxes, okay? So we're in Mark chapter 12, and um, there's a group of individuals that come up to him, the the Pharisees and the Herodians, and uh, they come up to Jesus. Now, these guys are not on the same team. Okay? They don't play nicely together, but they have a common bond in that they don't like Jesus. And so they come up to Jesus, and they want to trap him, trick him, in order to derail him. Okay? This is as best as I can uh, envision. Michigan and Michigan State are rivals. They don't like each other. So they can't stand each other, actually. So this would be like Michigan being the Pharisees, Michigan State being the Herodians, coming together saying, we cannot stand Ohio State. They're better than us. They're more powerful than us. So we need to come together to take down this powerhouse. So that's contextualization right there for you. So they come together, and they come to Jesus with a question that they want to trick him. They want to trap him, basically. And they come to him initially with some flattery, and they come and saying, Jesus, we know you're a great man of integrity, that you can't be swayed by popular opinion or by men and uh, that ultimately you're a, a man who teaches the way of God. Now, if they actually believe that, don't you think that it would have showed up in the question that they asked? Like, since you are a man of integrity, since you're not swayed by public opinion, since you are a man who understands the ways of God, would you teach us maybe the ways of God? Help us to understand the ways of God. This is the question that these two teams uh, come to Jesus with. Mark chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? I mean, really? You're standing in the presence of Jesus, who you just attested to is, you know, a man of God, man of great integrity, all of these things, and you want to know about taxes. Like, that's what's burning on your mind and heart. You must know, tell us about taxes. We, we really are not going to be able to sleep tonight and live the rest of our lives unless we know about taxes. So Mark 12, uh, verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? This is his response to them. Now, at this moment, if they were smart, they would have been like, okay, we're busted. He's totally seen through what we're trying to do, and they just would have put their tail between their legs and walked away, similar to what Michigan and Michigan State do when they face Ohio State. They did not learn their lesson. They continue on. Now, the issue is, They're pretty clever with their question, because if Jesus comes back and says, in fact, you should pay taxes, then the people of Israel are going to be like, what? This is a man that the crowds love. Now, the crowds, being Israel, do not like paying taxes to Caesar. They are oppressed by his taxes. So if Jesus says to them, uh, yes, in fact, you should pay taxes, then he will lose face in terms of the crowds. And if he says, no, you should not pay taxes, he's in jail. Rome will come after him basically for treason, sedition. 
and saying you are leading a rebellion of people to not pay taxes to Caesar. So this is a win-win solution or situation for these two teams, the the Pharisees and Herodians. It's a lose-lose situation. Either way, Jesus answers the question, he's either going to go to jail or the people are probably going to stone him. And I love what Jesus does. Talk about a man of wisdom. Jesus looks to them and he says, give me a coin. This is the only place, by the way, in the Gospels where Jesus ever asks anyone for money. Jesus asks them for a coin. And I love that he didn't actually have one. He looks at the Pharisees. Herodian says, you guys go ahead and give me a coin. The very individual that they did not want to support, that they could not stand, they had no problem carrying around his money. And so Jesus says, give me a coin. And in verse 15 through 17, it says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God." God's. And they were amazed. Okay, he looks at the coin and says, whose image is on this coin? Well, they say it's, it's Caesar's. Well, you don't have an issue carrying around coin with his image. So if it bears his image, give to the one whose image it bears. But what he then says is, now give to God what is God's. So the question then obviously becomes, well, what ultimately is God's? What does he mean? If, an Im- if a coin bears the image of Caesar and Jesus is saying, if it bears his image, then give it back to him. It belongs to him. So pay your taxes. But he says, give to God what belongs to God. What does belong to God? Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 27 answers the question. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You and I bear the image of God. Every single person, if you're human, you bear his image. It doesn't matter whether you know him in a personal way or you don't even believe in God. You were created in his image. So therefore, because you bear his image in your life, you were made in the likeness of God. You're not God. You were made in his image. So therefore, because you bear his image, give to God what belongs to God. You know what that translates? Give yourself to the one whose image you bear. I want to ask a question. I'm not going to answer it for you. I really want you to think and wrestle with this. And this is the question. How does one give all to God? If it's true that I am, in fact, an image bearer of God, which Scripture makes clear that you and I bear his image, what would it actually look like to give all, to give everything to the one whose image you bear? What does that mean? What does that look like for you to give it all? If you bear his image, what would it look like for you uh, to give to God what belongs to God? Second question. This is about heaven and hell and resurrection. There's another group who's standing by and like, wow, the Pharisees and Herodians, they didn't do such a good job. They struck out. Now it's the Sadducees' turn. They step up to the plate, try to take a swing. Now something to note about who the Sadducees are, four things. Real quick, just as background. These guys are members of the wealthy and privileged families, very well-to-do. 
they are religiously conservative, meaning they looked at the Pharisees and were like, you guys are a bunch of liberals. So they didn't even agree necessarily with the Pharisees and their understanding of Scripture. Uh, one thing was they only believed, if you were to look at a Bible, only five books count. There's 39 in the Old Testament, but they would say only five count. We're only going to pay attention to the first five known as the book or the Torah. And then the second thing is they didn't believe that people would be resurrected. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in the afterlife. So I'll set you up with this question Do you. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the afterlife? Do you believe that when you die, and if you didn't know this, I'm sorry to break the news to you, you will die. It's guaranteed. All of us will die. So what is your belief about afterlife? Six feet under and that's it? Or what happens? So these guys already, it's known that this community, this group of men, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the afterlife. So they come to Jesus with a question that ultimately they are already closed to. Have you ever met someone? They come to you with a question, and you already know that no matter how you answer them, they are already convinced in their minds of what is true and what's not. So it doesn't matter what you actually tell them. That's the individual who asks a question just to make you look like an idiot. Their whole point is trying to make Jesus look stupid. So they're about to ask him a question just to debunk, you actually believe in the resurrection? Are you kidding me? You're ridiculous for believing that. Mark 12, verse 18 through 19. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. This was a law that was in Deuteronomy, and the law was meant to protect the family, that what was in the family, the family name, the family inheritance would stay within the family. And so they're taking something that was written in God's law, uh, for meant for good, not for harm, and then they come up with this crazy story. And so they say to Jesus, say for, hypothetically, for example, the, this brother, he dies. Then the second brother comes, and there's no kids. So the second brother comes along, and he marries her, but there's no children. But then he dies. And then there's a third brother. And he goes, they go down this long list of seven brothers. Now, in this story, it's just ridiculous to begin with, but you would think like after the third or fourth brother, they'd be like, this chick is really bad news. We should just stay away from her because everyone who marries her, they're dying. So let's just kick her out of the family and not mess with her. So they come up with this story of, Seven brothers. I think there's like a, a, a Broadway play, isn't there? Seven brothers for... See, there you go. I am cultured. I know I don't look it, but I am. Um, seven brothers, one widow, no children. This is their question. Verse uh, 23. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Okay, as I said earlier, this is a question that is ultimately meant to ridicule Jesus, meaning the resurrection is, their, their thoughts towards the resurrection is life ultimately will be no different in the afterlife, except for this case, it's just going to be ultimately more chaotic. So they're just trying to paint this crazy story of just saying, is, I mean, is that really how it's going to happen? They're saying to Jesus, ultimately, there is no such thing as a resurrection. Jesus' response to them 
is twofold. He says, you guys don't even understand Scripture. You're clueless. You have no idea actually what God says, what God's Word says. And then he says something even more powerful. He says, you are a group of men who completely underestimate the power of God. In your theology, as whacked out as it is, you don't even believe that God is bigger than death. That's ultimately what they're saying. They have this belief that God is very big, but not big enough to beat death. And Jesus looks at them and says, you have a very small view of God. You're, you underestimate just how powerful God, in fact, actually is. Now, their question, as I mentioned, is really, so you're saying, Jesus, this afterlife is just a continuation of you know, what's happening here, meaning who gets to be married to her in heaven? And there's this conception, maybe it's yours, that basically the afterlife, heaven, is just a continuation. It's a big family reunion for all of our friends, all of our families will get together that will be getting married in heaven or will be being reunited with our, our spouse. And Jesus says, no, heaven is not a continuation of what life looks like here, not even close. There are no bridal showers in heaven. There are no, like, wedding parties. There are no banquets where you're going to be like, wow, look at that guy. He's a really cute angel, and wow, look at, that won't happen in heaven. I mean, it does, what do you actually think heaven will look like? A lot of what we think heaven is going to look like is just life like it is here, just without the problems, just without the issues. We have a very self-centered, self-focused view of what heaven's going to be like, meaning it's going to be paradise for us. You come up with whatever you think heaven's going to be, whatever you think the greatest, funnest thing is going to be, guess what? That's what heaven's going to be. No, heaven is not going to be about you, and heaven's not going to be about me. That would be actually called hell. Heaven is going to be about God. Heaven is going to be about standing in the very presence of God and being so utterly amazed with who God is. Heaven is not about you. Heaven is about God. They had no clue or concept of what Scripture taught and no clue or concept what the power of God was. So Jesus goes on and he quotes for them what they believed was Scripture. In Exodus, he says, in Exodus 3, 6, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why would God if he didn't have power over death, why would God claim to be the God of a bunch of dead corpses? This is when he meets Moses. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, when Moses sees this burning bush, and the thing that God speaks to Moses is, I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of your father Isaac and Jacob. It's not, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob meaning I am God even over death. I was not just their God, I am still their God, meaning death is not the end of it. That's what they thought. As soon as you die, that's the end of the game. And I want to be, hopefully, as clear as I can, that there is life after death. There is victory over death. And the way that we have life after death is because of Jesus. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this. It's a great question. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not the end of the story. It's certainly not the end of your story. Those who know Jesus will go on to life eternal in heaven with God. Those who do not know Jesus will not be resurrected to life in heaven, but resurrected to life in eternal hell. This is powerful. This is what Jesus is saying. I love that in Gospel of John, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. Two questions. Do we pay taxes? Jesus gives them an answer that utterly frustrates them. Second question, well, who gets to marry this, this woman at, at the resurrection? And Jesus frustrates them because he makes them look silly. Now we come to a third question. And this is certainly up for debate, but in my mind, uh, probably the greatest question uh, ever asked, ever. This is the question known as the great commandment. There is a man who was watching all of this take place and unfold, and he comes up to Jesus. I said there's two bad questions, and then there's one really powerful question. This is the good one. This is the powerful one. This is the one, if you've never asked, ask it now. This is the question that says, if I'm going to do something with my life, if I'm going to give my life to something, to someone, what should I do? What is the greatest thing that I can do? This teacher comes up, Mark 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? He didn't come to entrap Jesus he didn't come to test him. He didn't come to trick him. He came with some curiosity, and he came with some humility. In the Old Testament, there is 613 commandments. Uh, of those 613, 248 are positive commandments, meaning do this or do this. And of the remaining 613, there's 365 what would be considered prohibitions. Don't do this. He's saying of all of the 613, he's not trying to figure out what's the most important so I can neglect or disobey the others. I don't want to pay attention to 612 of them. He's saying, is there a common theme? Is there something that ties all of these 613 together? Because if there is, I want to know that one. I want to understand God's scripture, God's law. I want to understand what we know to be these 613 commandments that were meant to guide us in life and guide us to God. What's the one common law that holds all of these together? Now, Jesus' answer cuts right to the heart of Christianity. It cuts right to the heart of what faith is all about. If this is truly the greatest commandment, meaning the answer that Jesus is about to give, before I read it to you, and some of you might be familiar with it, would you actually live out the answer? If this is the greatest thing that we could pay attention to, that we could be committed to, would you give yourself to that? Because if you don't, that means you'll give yourself to something less. 
So before you hear what Jesus answers, I want to ask, will you give yourself to what this answer will be? If this is the greatest thing that we could give ourselves to, that we could focus in on, would you be committed to doing that? Mark 12, verse 29 through 31, Jesus says, the most important one, I love, the most important one is this. I mean, I can imagine this guy's ears perked up. I'm about to hear the most important commandment. I've studied these commandments. I'm familiar with all 613 of them. And I'm about to be, I can't, I'm almost about to hear what the most important one is. And Jesus goes on and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He starts there. And he goes and says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love God, love people. These are married together. These are not two separate commands. These commands work together. They live together. You cannot love God and then somehow not love people. And the only way that we can love people is if we're loving God. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, of the entire Old Testament, sums up the entire law, love God and love people. Now, as I was just sitting with this, I've read these verses so many times. They have been familiar verses of love God with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. And I tried to do the best I could to get my my heart and head in this in a new way, in a way to understand maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's something that I've just never seen before. And so as I was wrestling with that, one of the things that jumped to mind was there's a God to love. Like, we have a God that has called us to love him. He is not a nameless, faceless being. It's not some cosmic figure the, the, the force, this impersonal being, Jesus says there is a God to be loved. Second thing, he is one God. There is not many gods. There is just one God, capital G. I know we make our lives about sometimes a small G, the small gods, but Scripture makes clear, Jesus makes clear, there is only one God. He is not divided. The third thing is, if you were just to look at that command to love God, love people, what do you think, what would jump out to you that is really important to God? I would say relationships. A relationship vertically and a relationship horizontally. If you were just to have that command as the most important thing, it screams relationships. Relationships matter to God. Your relationship with him your relationship with one another. The fourth thing, love matters to God. The relationship that we're called to have with God is based on love. It's not based on just following a bunch of rules. God calls you and I to have a relationship with him that is based on love. 
And by the way, he is the object of your love. Not a set of rules, not anything. He is the only object of your love. And then he gives the command that we are to love God as we are loved. Meaning, God doesn't love just parts of you. He doesn't like look at you and be like, well, that part of you I really dig. I'm really into you there. But that part, not so much. Like God doesn't look at you and break you up into fractions of a person and then pick and choose which part of you he would like to to love. So when Jesus says, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's not trying to divide your person. He's trying to unite your person. And the command is that we would love God as God loves us, not just in pieces or parts, but the whole. That we would love God, all of God, as God loves all of you. I don't know about you, but that brings me great encouragement and comfort to know that God just doesn't love my what I would say is my good parts. Like, he doesn't break me up into pieces. He loves all of me, loves all of you, and calls us to love all of him, not just parts of him. God's command, love him as he loves us. Love God, love people. Now, the question that uh, at least kept coming back Uh, to mind, how does one actually express love to God? If uh, you're married, you might be familiar with a book called The The Five Love Languages. And I say it's cheesy, but it's been helpful. Um, Because sometimes I love Kyla the way that I want her to love me. And sometimes that doesn't really communicate love to Kyla. That's actually more selfish, self-centered of Ultimately, I'm only doing this for you because I want you to do this for me. So if God would have a love language, what would God's love language be? Like if the greatest thing you could do that we can give ourselves to is love God and love people, you better know how to express love to God. So how does one, how do you, how do, how do I express that we love God? Certainly you could say, well, I could tell him. That's good. I could show them how. How would you ultimately show God that you love him? Not just a part of him, not just a piece of him, but that you love all of God. I want to go back to the garden. There was a young couple who was naked and in love named Adam and Eve. And God gave them a certain command. And he said, all of this you can have. But there is one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree is off limits. Many people have asked throughout the centuries, if God didn't want them to eat from the tree, why did you put the tree in the garden? Like, what's the point? And my answer to that is God wanted to give Adam and Eve a chance, an opportunity to express love to their creator. I ask again, how do we express love to God? If the tree was planted in the garden as a way, as an opportunity for Adam and Eve to express love to God, the one word that I would give you, and I hope you remember this, God's love language, 
the one thing that you can do to express to the creator of the universe that you love him is called obedience. If you want to communicate that you love God, all of him, with all of you, you will be a person who is obedient. This is John chapter 14 and a few verses uh, that Jesus communicates this. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Jump down to verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. God the Father spoke to God the Son, Jesus, and and said, Tell them, love will be found in obedience. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey me. So this is the question. Will you be obedient? Tonight, as you sit here, will you make a declaration, a decision to say, from this point forward, I will be a person of obedience because I want my God to know that I love him. All of him, not just parts. Will you be obedient? Now, obviously, the follow-up question, what's God calling you to be obedient with right now? I don't mean like big pie in the sky, day-to-day life. What is God calling you to be obedient with? Maybe it's an attitude you have. Maybe it's decisions you have to make. Maybe it's certain behaviors and patterns. Maybe it's your future. What is it that God is calling you right now as you sit here, Sunday night, June 14th, that God is saying, be obedient to me with this? Maybe God is calling you to go somewhere. And he's been calling you to go somewhere for a long time. Would you be obedient with where he's calling you to go? Maybe he's calling you to trust him. I don't know what it would be, but maybe God is saying, would you just trust me with this? Could be your future, could be your job, could be a relationship. Would you be obedient and trust me? Maybe God's calling you to come clean. Maybe for months, God is saying, would you just come clean with this? Would you be truthful? Confess to that person what you need to confess. Would you be obedient with what God is calling you to come clean with? Maybe God is calling you to love someone. Maybe there's that individual in your life who is utterly unlovely. They do nothing but annoy you, frustrate you, hurt you, take jabs at you, take shots at you. Maybe God is calling you to say, would you be obedient and would you love that person the same way I love you when you take shots at me, the same way where you rebel against me? Maybe God is saying, this is always a hard one, will you forgive that person? Maybe your obedience is actually going to be found in forgiveness to that person who's utterly hurt you, wronged you, caused a great deal of pain. Would you be obedient? to say, I will forgive. Why? Because God told you to. So would you be obedient in forgiveness? Maybe God's calling you to be obedient by making the first move. I have a sense that maybe there's some of us in here tonight who need to make the first move. And fellas, I'm not talking about the girl that you've been thinking, oh, well, Michael just said I should make the first move. God told me to. 
I'm talking about those relationships that are busted and broken and need someone to make the first move to restore and reconcile. Parents, maybe it's with one of your kids. Maybe it's someone at your work. Maybe it's a roommate, someone in your own home. Maybe God is saying, would you be obedient and be the first person to make that first move? Maybe God's saying, would you give? Would you start being a generous person? Start giving of yourself, giving of your time, your talents, your treasures. Maybe God's saying, would you serve? The list I have is pretty long, I realize. What is God tonight in this place calling you to be obedient with? Obedience communicates love. It expresses love to God. Adam and Eve missed their chance. They said, we will not love you. We will love ourselves. We will do what we want. We will take the fruit from the tree that you told us not to. And can I just tell you where there is disobedience, there is an incredible ripple effect that is being felt. Their one decision to disobey countless of millions and millions and millions of people have felt that. Love to God is seen in obedience. So I know I keep repeating this question, but will you do it? If this is the one way that you can clearly articulate and communicate love to Jesus, to God, will you be uh, obedient totally? fully, completely. Like there are people who can just be obedient and will themselves to do it, but their heart's not in it. It doesn't count. I'll tell you that. You can just say, well, fine, I'll do that. I'll mend that relationship. But your heart is still hard as a rock. Just so you know, that doesn't count. God doesn't look and be like, well, at least they're trying. Consider the story of the prodigal. There was one son who took off. He left. Open rebellion. Then there was an older brother who it says he was obedient, and he claims, I was obedient. I did everything you ever told me to do. He didn't. His heart was utterly hard towards his father. You can't just will yourself to be obedient, because if your heart's not in it, it just doesn't count. Obedience with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what communicates love to God. And then Jesus gave the follow-up commandment is to love your neighbor. So the obvious question is, who's my neighbor? And I'll answer this one quickly. Everyone. There's no one who's not your neighbor. I'll go back to what I said a few minutes ago is loving those unlovelies. That's your neighbor. You're called to love them. And what Jesus says in a few different scriptures, John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If this world is going to know that you are a follower of God, a lover of Jesus, it will show up in how you love the person next to you. And I don't mean the person sitting here next to you tonight. He goes on in 1 John Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, guess what that makes you? A big, fat liar. It is just not possible to say, I love God, but I hate you. Because it looks, that person 
square in the eye and says, even though you bear God's image, the one who I claim to love, I hate you. You're a liar. You don't love God. The command, love God and love people. For those of you who have been around Genesis for a long time, hopefully you know this. And for those of you who are brand new, this is what we have declared is our purpose. That we will be a people, a community, a church that will say we will love God and we will love people. That's what we will give ourselves to. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of a community, a church that says, I'm about giving myself to loving God. I can't do that on my own, so that's why we do it in the context of community. And I want to learn how to love people because I know how utterly selfish I can be. How about you? Love God, love people. This is the greatest thing. Jesus sums up the entire law. Love God, love people. The teacher who asked him this question came back and said, you know what, Jesus, that's a great answer. Actually, in fact, that answer pretty much trumps the entire sacrificial system. And Jesus looks at this man and he says this in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I love that. You know, we're just not doing that well with our questions, so just drop it. He looks at this man and says, you are not far from the kingdom. This is a really hard verse right there because there are some here tonight, you're close, but you're not yet in. He looks at this man who is a teacher of Scripture and says, you are not far, you are so close, but you're not yet in. There's an author who once said that the longest road travel is about 18 inches. To take what you know up here and plant it in here. There is a difference of the individual who can claim, yep, I, I know Jesus. I, I even believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I believe the Bible. You can have intellectual belief, even intellectual conviction. But if you, as a person, have not submitted or surrendered yourself to say, not only do I can believe in my head that Jesus is in fact who he is, who he said he was, but I've actually submitted myself that he is my God. I surrender to him. I submit to him. It's not good enough just to believe it in your head. It's all of you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just confessing something up here, but making that long road to your heart to say, I submit to him as my Lord, as my God. What he calls me to do, I do. When he calls me to do it, I do it. Why? Because I want to let him know how much I actually love him. Would he say that to you tonight? Would he look at you and say, you're close, you're, you're almost there, but you still have a decision yet to be made? If that's you, would you make that decision tonight? To say, I, I want to take, God, what's up here, would you plant it now firmly in here? So all of you, not just a part of you, but all of you would begin to express love to God. Jesus finishes up the rest of the chapter in um, chapter 12. 
And I'm going to encourage you to actually just uh, read that on your own. But there's a few more sections in, in Mark 12 where Jesus is teaching on a few different things. One being, you know, he's trying to teach the people. They had a very misconstrued idea of who he was going to be. They wanted Jesus to be uh, a political champion. And Jesus says, no, I'm a savior sent by God to save you. And then he gives a warning to people. He says, you see these religious people? They look good on the outside, uh, but they can't fake God out. I want you to hear that. Like, you might look good on the outside, but you can't fake God out. And so Jesus calls out these religious leaders and says, look at them. They have really beautiful, lengthy prayers, and they dress in these fancy robes. They look like they got their stuff together on the outside, but their hearts are wicked, far from God. And you know what he says to them? He says there will be severe punishment for people who live for the impression of being close to God but yet are far from him. You cannot fake God out. I confess you can fake me out. It's happened so many times where someone knows the right thing to say and how to say it and when to say it. They pray beautiful prayers. You know why I can spot that person really well? It's because it used to be me. Man, I would get up in front of church as a kid And I would, if you just pay attention, you can learn how someone else prays and just mimic them. And you'd have people come up to you afterwards and be like, wow, that was amazing. I'm like, I know. You can't fake God out. You can fake people out, but you can't fake God out. And then he finishes in Mark 12 with a great story of what generosity actually looks like. Generosity is not seen in giving out of your wealth, but it's actually seen in giving out of what you don't have. I would encourage you to go back and, and uh, finish uh, reading the rest of Mark 12. But tonight I just wanted to finish with that question. It was really impressed upon my heart this week is, if the greatest thing that I can do is love God and love people, I better know how to love God. I better know how to speak God's love language, as it were. And if the one way that I can express love to God is to be obedient, then I better start examining Where in my life is God calling me to be obedient? And then I need to make a decision, will I be obedient? Tonight, as we would finish and continue with worship and celebration of communion, I want you to get stuck there. Because I have a sense, I have a feeling that there are some of us here tonight who need to make some decisions. Decision one of just being obedient. I gave you a long list. What's God calling you to be obedient? And then the second thing is, there might be people here tonight who are close, but not in. In this time, in this time of worship, would you confess, would you say, God, what's up here, what I believe in here, I want to take that 18-inch travel journey. Not just confess Jesus up here, but surrender to Jesus with your life. God questions Thank you that you give us the freedom and permission to ask questions and to come to you with questions. And I thank you for this man who came to Jesus with a phenomenal question. More than the question, I give thanks that, Jesus, you gave an answer that was so crystal clear. There is no room for confusion. Jesus, you made clear that loving God and loving people is what it's all about. God, I sense that there are many here tonight who are maybe burdened 
with things that they need to start being obedient to you with. God, whatever that is, God, I pray that tonight a decision, a declaration would be made of I will be obedient because I desire to express love to you. And God, I do pray if there's someone here tonight that is close, they would take what they know in their head and confess it with their life, that Jesus, you are God, that Jesus, you are the one who brings us into right relationship with you, both now and forever.